0: This episode is supported by Army Reserve Officers Training Corps, the college elective for undergraduate and graduate students that provides leadership training for success in any career field. If you have a passion for it, you can find a place to fit in the Army as an officer and get the training you need to turn that passion into a career. It offers merit-based scholarships that can pay up to the full cost of tuition and open educational opportunities. Whether you are in high school, college, or already in the Army, are you ready to become a leader? Enroll now. To receive more information about the Army ROTC program, visit goarmy.com podcast.
1: This is Data Science at Home, the podcast that makes machine learning and artificial intelligence easy for everyone. Here's your host, Francesco
2: Garalletta.
0: Thanks for tuning in and welcome back to Data Science At Home podcast, where we talk about technology, machine learning, and algorithms. Today's episode will be about deep learning and reasoning. Now, there has been a lot of discussion about the effectiveness of deep learning models and uh, their capability to generalize, not only across domains, but also on data that such models have never seen before. But there is a research group from the Department of Computer Science at Duke University That seems to be on something with uh, deep learning and interpretability in computer vision. And uh, today is one of these rare moments, which I'm uh, uh, with uh, the entire group of research. I'm here with uh, uh, Chaofon Chen, uh, Oscar Lee, Alina Barnett, Cynthia Rudin from Duke, and uh, Jonathan Su from MIT Lincoln Laboratory. Hi, everyone, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Great, Great. thank you. you. (laughs) That was a lot of noise. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I'm, uh, I'm super excited to be w- with you guys because um, this is one of these topics that really um, is really interesting and really interests our community. Now, in order to uh, break the ice, I would like to know what is what type of research do you guys do at Duke University? Is it mainly AI and deep learning oriented
3: um, so this is Cynthia Rudin. I, uh, I run the Prediction Analysis Lab at Duke, which is uh, mostly focused on interpretable machine learning, and we have a lot of projects that are not uh, deep learning. Actually, um, computer vision is is kind of something new for us, but we were doing it to prove a point. Um, a lot of people assume that there's a trade-off between accuracy and interpretability, so that if you want a really accurate model, they think you have to create a black box, but that really isn't true. So our goal here was to create an interpretable model for computer vision that is as accurate as any uh, black box vision indeed,
0: model. indeed there is a, a great discussion about this, uh, you know dilemma between uh, Uh, for instance, decision trees and neural networks and uh, which one is most interpretable with respect to the other. And you have a great point about that. Now, the project we are referring to in in this episode in particular is described in a paper that you guys published very recently, uh, which is titled uh, This Looks Like That Deep Learning for Interpretable Image Recognition. Now, let's start describing the project in a bit more detail when we watch something you know as human beings we are used to make comparisons and say things like hey this animal looks a bit like that other animal i don't know the name or that face really reminds me of that other guy now how do humans interpret images
3: yeah so you've got it exactly right um so let's let's think about some situations where people need to describe to others how how they identify some object in an image Um, Often what they do is they take the image and they put arrows all over the picture or they point to it um, and they point out what aspects of the picture we're supposed to be looking at and why. Like for bird watching, uh, people have to identify what type of bird they're looking at. So they label the different parts of the bird. They say, this looks like a goldfinch's beak and this looks like the crown of a woodpecker, you know, whatever. Um, And you can see these kinds of images with arrows for identifying like all different kinds of things, like what architectural style a house is. Um, And they do it in medicine and radiology for analyzing medical images and they do it for even like Microanalyzing facial expressions. It's how humans often explain to each other why this thing is what it is because it Looks like that other thing that I've seen before
0: Hmm. So this is kind of an unsupervised learning where this other thing doesn't necessarily have a label, right?
4: well, it doesn't have to have a label but like Well, our framework is pretty general in that when learning the prototypes, well, it could use supervised data sets or unsupervised data set where the data are completely uh, unlabeled. So our framework is pretty general in that regard.
0: Cool. OK, we'll go through the details uh, in a minute. Now, what is the main goal of this project?
3: Um, Well, we wanted to have the algorithm first be accurate, but also explain its classification of images the same way that humans do by picking out parts of the image and telling us that it's classifying something in a particular way because it thinks this looks like something it's seen before and it's showing us what that is.
2: Uh, So the model will automatically learn a set of image patches whose presence or absence is most indicative of the presence or absence of a certain class. And this set of prototypical image patches will serve as the cases each image will be compared against. This classification process resembles that of a case-based reasoning.
0: Okay, so is the case-based reasoning the method that appeared first in the 80s and uh, consists in the process of solving new problems based on solutions of similar past problems, right?
2: Yes, that's exactly right.
0: Okay, got it. Now, how different is this approach from a, let's say, more traditional one in which the goal, for instance, in the case of a classifier, is to find the best input that maximizes a specific label or class.
4: So I guess you're talking about activation maximization. Well, that's a post hoc method, where you first create a deep learning model and then figure out afterwards what it is doing. But in contrast, our network actually explains its own reasoning process. It says, I think these parts of the image look like these parts of the images I've seen before, and I'm I'm going to use that information to make my decision. So the
5: network itself is actually interpretable, which isn't post-hoc. Right. This is uh, Jonathan at Lincoln Laboratory. So this approach builds in interpretability from the start, instead of trying to come up with an approximate explanation after the fact. Uh, It modifies the network architecture and the objective function to support interpretability. So the explanation that one gets describes what the network is really doing. Uh, I suppose one could say that the difference is that instead of making up an explanation for the network, we're making the network explain itself.
0: I see, so it's kind of taking the best of both worlds between um, interpreting things and making predictions. Okay, can you uh, explain a bit more in detail the idea of having prototypes and identifying parts of images to such prototypes in order to perform a classification?
5: Sure, Uh, during training, the network learns prototypical image parts and it learns to use a sparse combination of those parts to contribute to each class. Uh, The parts are spread out across the training set, so they cover it, and each part matches some part of a training image. So for example, the network might learn parts like a tire, a windshield, a door, uh, a wing, and a jet engine, Uh, and the sparse combinations mean the network doesn't use every part for every class, and finally, the presence of a part can either encourage or discourage a class. So, for example, the network might learn to use the tire, windshield, and jet engine for the car class, and it might learn to use the tire, wing, and jet engine for the airplane class. Uh, Now, what does a jet engine have to do with a car? Not very much, but actually the network can learn that the presence of a jet engine part discourages the car class and encourages the airplane class.
1: Yes, this is Alina. And, for example, the model learns prototypes like maybe the red wing of a red-winged blackbird, blackbird, or the yellow throat of a yellow-throated warbler, then when it classifies a new image, it'll look for a patch similar to the learned prototypes. So the network could tell you something like, this throat patch from the new image you've given me looks like that yellow-throated warbler patch from the training set from before.
0: Oh, I see. Well, is there a risk that the this learning interpretability process is uh, kind of dependent on the training set? For example, In some training data sets, I expect that very specific prototypes might be easily learned with respect to other data set and eventually used as sparse combination, as you just mentioned. Is that possible in your uh, approach?
1: Yeah. So our method might have that effect, but you would be able to see if it's using only a few prototypes in a standard model. You wouldn't have any indication that it's only looking at one feature. Um, and in all standard machine learning classification, the similarity between the testing and training data sets will have a major effect on the results.
0: I would say this looks like that. And in this specific case, I would say this looks like that attention-based mechanisms. In, in this mechanism, a model is able to focus on a certain region of an image with, let's say, higher resolution and perceiving the rest Uh, in a so-called lower resolution, such that only specific regions are indeed considered for classification or prediction in general. Now, how does your approach differ from attention mechanisms in deep learning?
2: Okay, so this is Chau Fan. Um, So there are indeed connections between our model and attention models. When classifying an unseen image, our network computes a similarity map between its patches and each of its prototypes. And this similarity map can be interpreted as a coarse grained attention, attention map, where the highly activated region on this similarity map indicates something similar to the prototype that has been detected on the original image.
4: And uh, to add on to that, uh, I'm Oscar. Uh, when making the final decision, our network will only use the strengths of the most similar patches as the supporting evidence. So in this way, we can also view our network as focusing its attention only on the regions which it thinks are the most helpful, so which also in some sense resemble the attention mechanism.
3: Yeah, so it, it does a little more than just attention. It's it's sort of like k nearest neighbors, but it's more like nearest parts of special neighbors, which are the prototypes.
0: Well, another common ground that I found is uh, the one with generative models. So in uh, generative models, one can generate a similar input and then project it to lower dimensional space for classification. Now, we could briefly say that a combination of unsupervised, supervised approach is used in that case. How does your approach differ from generative models?
1: So we aren't generating any similar inputs. It's solely a discriminative model. As for supervised and unsupervised, we would generally call this a supervised approach because all of our training data is labeled.
3: Yeah, so just to... um follow on what Alina said. Um, this is Cynthia again. Uh, this paper, this particular paper is not generative, but um, some of the past work we've done in this area solves a similar problem with using like prototypes or parts of neighbors, and it does use generative models. And it can be used for unsupervised learning. Um, so for instance, I've got a paper with Bing Kim and Julie Shah from NIPS 2014 called the Bayesian case method that does this sort of thing for categorical data without neural networks. Um, and it's for it's just for categorical data. And then there's a new follow-up paper with Raman Mogadas on this um, same topic called Bayesian patchworks, where each new observation is modeled as if it were generated from parts of other parent observations. Um, And and we can generate just X without Y, so it can be supervised or unsupervised.
0: Speaking about the network architecture, you have implemented this approach with uh, convolutional neural networks. Now, does this approach generalize to other architectures too?
3: Yeah, um it, it totally generalizes. Um we we've actually uh, have several papers on this basic idea of comparing a new test observation to to the parts of past observations that don't involve neural networks. Um, and so I mentioned already the work that we did on Bayesian the Bayesian case method and Bayesian Patrick's. Um, but there's also a paper with Tong Wong that identifies crime series uh, by looking at whether some like subset of features of a crime uh, define a modus operandi of a criminal that we've seen before. So you can do this this type of model for pretty much any setting.
2: Uh, so this is Chao Fan again, and I would like to add something. Um, speaking of generalizing to other architectures, we could attach our prototype layer to any deep learning neural network. Uh, for example, we could include our prototype layer in a fully connected network and treat prototypes as one-dimensional vectors in the latent space that the output of a fully connected layer can compare against.
0: I see. So uh, when it comes to neural network, of course, probably the most painful part is evaluating uh, these, these topologies, these architectures. So how did you guys evaluate this approach? How, how would you claim it improves over, for example, traditional convolutional neural networks? Mm-hmm.
4: So uh, this is Oscar. Um, so because our special prototype layer uh, can be sub- can sub- substitute a fully connected layer in the final stage of any standard convolutional neural network, So we have conducted multiple ablation studies that compare our model with standard CNNs which have the same architecture except for only the last layer. So what we have found then is that in general, our model performs about equally
5: well while providing that actual level of interpretability. Right, and this is Jonathan again. Um, In addition, convolutional neural networks are often highly over-parameterized, so there's potentially room to include other constraints without sacrificing accuracy. Uh, And in our case, these added constraints can help shape the latent space as well as reduce overfitting.
0: Okay. In your approach, you have used uh, pretty much images. And so you apply this to computer vision. Now, do you think this method could be applied to other types of data? For example, uh, you know, not just images, Uh, I would think about text in this moment. So my question is, would it be possible to consider it for, for example, language models?
1: This is Alina, and this method uses L2 distances, prototypes and patches So classifying classifying using L2 distance in the latent space could be readily applied to a variety of data types. No matter what the input is, if there's a latent space, we can calculate L2 distances. Deciding what a patch or part is and how to isolate that is different for non-image inputs and somewhat more difficult. For NLP, you might be able to just use parts of sentences. We haven't done any of that though.
0: I see. And uh, what's in the future then for uh, this looks like that?
3: Um, well, we've been working with some Duke undergraduates to apply it to medical images and some other, you know, high stakes decision making problems where you care about interpretability, um, but mostly like medical images. And um, we have a lot of ideas <laughs> kind of up our sleeve on how to build on our framework. Um, we've been working on this for about a year and a half now. So um, so we're really kind of getting into it. It's like it's a really fun problem.
0: <laughs> it really is. Now, uh, it was very exciting, of course, to have you here, guys. And uh, uh, if you want, you can share your contacts so that people and maybe other researchers can can reach out.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our lab has a website. And if you just uh, Google my name, Cynthia Rudin, you'll you'll get onto our website and you can check out check out our stuff.
0: Cool. I will add that to the show note, of course. And uh, thanks for being here.
5: Yeah, thank, you mm-hmm. thank, you. thank you very much. Thank you very much.
0: This episode is supported by CryptPad, the secure collaboration platform to edit your documents with colleagues and friends without compromising your privacy. No document can be read by the cloud or the NSA, not even CryptPad themselves. You can try it for free. For more, visit cryptpad.fr. C-R-Y-P-T-P-A-D Fr. This was Data Science at Home, the podcast that makes machine learning and artificial intelligence easy for everyone. If you like the show, don't forget to write a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podbean. You can also find us on datascienceathome.com, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and get the latest updates. Thanks for listening. Hey, are you still there? Well, let me tell you about the newsletter of Data Science at Home. It's my free digest of the best content in artificial intelligence, data science, predictive analytics, and computer science. Subscribe now, datascienceathome.com.